0: Well, that song gives all of these different pictures of God's Word, a a garden and the starry host, a thousand rays of light. It says at one point that your Word is like a deep, deep mine. And that is probably the best picture of where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bibles out, let me have you turn them to Mark To chapter 13 and we will read we'll read starting at the beginning of the the chapter and we'll read through verse 23 we will particularly be looking this morning at verses 14 through 23 but let's start at the beginning of the chapter mark chapter 13 this is God's word let us uh, be humbled before it and give heed to its reading And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my sake my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you give to us. We thank you for the work of the Spirit in, in, in inspiring these words that we read and working, moving along the men who wrote them that we have before us not merely the word of man but the word of God. We pray, Father, that this same Spirit would illumine our hearts this morning we pray that the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, would work in he who proclaims these things and we who hear them. Lord, we recognize, particularly this morning, Father, that these are difficult uh, words, uh, difficult to understand, and we pray that you would help us to, to pierce through, uh, to be able to take from these Words of information, words of warning, words of encouragement, and things which lead us back to you and to your grace, Lord, and to your mercy. We pray that you would bless our time in your word this morning. Now, we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated and keep your Bibles out as we look through these things this morning. Of course, we are continuing. Our look at what's known as the Olivet Discourse, given by Jesus on the Mount of Olives, just east of the city of Jerusalem, and recorded by Mark here in chapter 13, also recorded by Matthew in his gospel in chapter 24, and Luke 21 gives us Luke's record of this. These words are given in answer to a question of the disciples to Jesus, which in turn was a response to Jesus' statement that we read this morning concerning the soon-to-come, at this time, the soon-to-come destruction of the temple of Yahweh there in Jerusalem. When the disciples in verse 1 pointed out the beauty, the glory of this structure, the temple, Jesus had responded there in verse 2 by saying, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone on another that will not be thrown down. And it is to that then that the disciples come to Jesus when they get across to the Mount of Olives. They come and they say, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are accomplished? Jesus, when is this going to happen? Uh, We looked last week that the answer then that Jesus gives takes up the rest of this chapter beginning in verse 5. And last week, we, in our introduction to this uh, very difficult chapter, we looked at some of the different ways that Bible teachers, different Bible teachers, have sort of sought to understand Jesus' answer here. And we learned about the way that both the disciples question, especially as it is more fully given to us in Matthew's uh, record, and especially in Jesus' answer to the question, that, that Jesus combines elements of, of a fulfillment of Jesus' prediction concerning the temple, which would happen uh, at what we would call the end of the Jewish age, at the end of the age where the temple and its function was central to the Jewish religion, and as that ended when this, with the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in the year 70 AD, and, and, and a second, more ultimate fulfillment, which will happen at the end of the age, considered uh, more broadly, the last of the last days, at the still future day of the return of Jesus Christ. And we learned that, the, that part of the difficulty, and this, this is generally understood to be one of the, if not the, most difficult uh, passages to deal with in the New Testament. Part of the difficulty of understanding this passage is to, is to discern what Jesus, at what point in his answer here, is talking about. Which event is he talking about? Is he talking about uh, what happened at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Is he talking about what will happen at... Uh, right near the, the end of time when he is ready to return, where, is the, where are the lines to, to divide that? Because Jesus obviously is dealing with, with both situations. And we saw last week that in some, probably most aspects of Jesus' teaching here, he is involved in what we talked about as near and far fulfillments of at times, the same statement, the same passage. Uh, We talked about that, the the idea of a a near fulfillment and then a far fulfillment. And let me give you just another, hopefully another tool, another way of of looking at that somewhat difficult concept. When you're out here driving along the road, um, here at the north end of the valley, you can see this whether you're looking northeast or west, And you drive along, and you look up, and you see the mountains that are visible all around. You'll see a group of of mountaintops. And from the distance that you are when you're driving around here in town, they all look, these different mountaintops and peaks, all look to be uh, roughly the same distance away, all part of maybe a single range of mountains, part of the same close group of mountains. And it's only as you then start driving towards them and into them that they are found to be not very close together very often, but separated at times by many, many, many miles. Well, a similar thing happens uh, with prophecy in the Scripture, in the Bible. One specific prophecy and the different details that it sometimes deals with may sound at the time the prophecy is given, as if it's just talking about a single event that will happen. But when you get closer, when it comes to the time when we see those things fulfilled, we see that they are really sometimes separated by long amounts of time, thousands of years sometimes. And I think that that understanding is also helpful for us in seeking to understand this passage so be ready for, for terms such as a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, something that happened uh, close to the time the prophecy is given, and then something that, that happened or will happen farther in the future. And also talk about ultimate, um, initial and ultimate fulfillment as we go through these things. And these are difficult to, to ferret out. We talked about that when we did our introduction a couple weeks ago, that that this is, this is hard. I talked to you about my time in, in seminary where the professor started by saying it's okay to say, I don't know. Uh, and, and this is one of those times where hof- hopefully any pastor who is honest with his congregation is gonna say, I don't know for sure. I cannot say. This is absolutely the, the, the proper understanding of where these lines are, as Jesus talks about. It's difficult. As difficult as it is to look at the mountain peaks in the distance and say, which one is closer than the other? Those are some of the things that we have to to struggle with. So last week, uh, as we saw the beginning of this, we looked at verses 3 through 13. uh, We saw that, contrary to what so many want to do today, that Jesus actually discouraged his disciples discouraged people from getting all caught up in all of the the so-called signs of the times and rather told his disciples, thinking back to last week, to not be alarmed when you hear about wars and rumors of wars. To not be alarmed when there are famines and earthquakes. He said that these things must happen, but the end isn't yet. They are not harbingers of of the end. They're only the beginning of birth pains, as he said. They're part of what happens in a fallen world. And that's true, isn't it? We look back and we see famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars from the very beginning of time up until today, and they're going to continue. They're part of what happens. And he told his his disciples to be ready also for persecution, persecution for increased uh, a betrayal even from members of your own family perhaps. And we, we saw that that happened um, even in the days that Jesus spoke here. All of these things are inevitable. And the important thing, as we learned last week, was that we don't let them shake us. And we don't sort of get tunnel vision, as, as so many want to do today, on the signs of the times and trying to discern When Jesus is coming back, because as we'll learn later in this passage, Jesus didn't even know when he will be coming back. So that was last week. But now, in verses 14 through 23, Jesus switches gears and points to a particular sign, a particular event, that he says does demand action. And he says, when you see it, flee it. It's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to see in these verses this morning a trigger. We'll see a response. We'll see an explanation. We'll see a warning. And we'll see a promise. All by Christ in, the, the, in these verses that we'll be looking at. First is a trigger. Look at verse 14. Let's, let's get into it by starting in verse 13. He says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There are few terms in the Bible more soaked in apocalyptic soup than the abomination of desolation. And that's strange since we don't know exactly what it is. But what is it? it? It comes to us from the book of Daniel. Matthew even tells us in his record explicitly that. It comes from the book of Daniel. It shows up in Daniel's... Prophecy in three different places, all in the context of the visions that Daniel received of, of the times, even up to the, the end times. For example, chapter 11, verse 31, which we read this morning, says of this person that forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. The phrase has to do with the introduction into the temple, something that is pagan, that is idolatrous, something that is so vile that it is an abomination to God, and to his laws concerning worship and the temple in such a way that by its presence, by the actions around it, that it destroys the the holiness of the temple, renders it unclean by ceremonial standards, renders it really as far as a place for, for worship to Almighty God, renders it unusable and repugnant to God, and to his people. It is unclear whether it is to be understood as a thing or a person. The way the ESV translates it there in verse 14, choose, and, and the word can be understand understood either way, translated, either way it says when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to that could be translated where it ought not to now there are we won't get into this this morning there are grammatical signals that let us think that it's probably he as the esv has it translated here the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to but what is it we still don't know we're not told exactly but there are a couple of incidents in history that seem to fit the bill of this and that uh, the Jews and the church have agreed pretty much that these are instances of this abomination of desolation or abomination that causes desolation. First, and this most certainly fits as Here's the term, a near fulfillment, an initial fulfillment of this prophecy. As it was given by Daniel, are the actions of a man, the man again referenced in the passage that we read this morning from Daniel chapter 11, a man known to history as Antiochus or Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. The Epiphanes was Uh, a name that he gave to himself that means the great or the revealing of God. Uh, Some of the people that he ruled over did not agree with that. They had a nickname. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, which sounds the same, but it means insane. He was ruler of the Seleucid Empire, which uh, covered the area of what today is Syria and Turkey and Iraq, and Iran and Afghanistan, parts of all of those, huge. Um, he was a ruler of that empire which arose out of the aftermath of the death of Alexander the Great and the division of the kingdom by his, his generals. Um, leaving out a lot of history that's pretty interesting, the, the height of this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was, he was a pretty horrible guy. Uh, the, the height of his assault on the Jewish people, which is where his insanity ended up being directed, uh, was his desecration of the temple in Jerusalem. The extra-biblical book of 1 Maccabees tells us about that. Sometimes we talk about uh, those, those books in between the Old Testament and New Testament that are in many uh, Catholic Bibles, and we say, What do we do with those? Well, here's one of the things that we can do we can learn the history of what happened during this time. And 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees tell us about the things that went on during this time. 1 Maccabees 1 54 through 64 records the actions of this man. It says, in uh, the date works out to 167 BC. It says they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. I would say in the temple, in the holy place. It says also that the books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant would be the law, or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by the decree of the king. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. goes on to say that they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them, and they hung the infants from their mothers' necks. Mentioned this offering of a sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. They had built an altar dedicated to Zeus, a Roman god, and it was erected on top of the altar of God, the altar of burnt offering in the temple, and sacrifices were made on that altar, uh, most well known, including the sacrifice of a pig, which to the Jews was the epitome of uncleanness. And those, those actions led to what we know in history is the Maccabean Revolt, and you can read about that too. Um, these things are the first incident that is identified with the abomination of desolation because that, those actions, particularly the offering of a pig on an altar to a pagan god in the place, in the holy place of the temple, that is an abomination that causes desolation. And so the Jews understood that that was a fulfillment of Daniel's uh, prophecy of this that would happen. Now obviously that's not the reference that that Jesus was speaking of here in Mark chapter 13. Since it happened in 167 BC, it happened in the past uh, as Jesus spoke. But Jesus spoke of the abomination of desolation as something that would happen in the future. So there must be another fulfillment of this, a a farther fulfillment of it. And most scholars and to this we would add the opinion of the Jewish historian Josephus who was alive at the time. Uh, In fact he was a Jew who ended up in the, the service of the Roman army. In fact he ended up because of his his knowledge and his valor. He became a friend of the general in charge of all of this named Titus, and, and Josephus ended up being used by the Roman army to, to go to the Jews and to try to get them to surrender, not because he wanted to be a traitor, but because he knew what was going to happen to them, to the city, to the temple, if they didn't. So he knows of what he speaks here. And these scholars and Josephus himself see the clear fulfillment of the abomination of desolation that Jesus speaks of here as taking place in the middle of the first Jewish-Roman war in the year 70 A.D., also referred to as the Great Revolt because this war arose out of, of a revolt of the Jewish people against the harsh rule of the Romans as they had ruled over them since 63 B.C. And again, we'll skip a lot of the, the history around it, but needless to say, this all sort of came to a head in 66 A.D., beginning in 66 A.D., when the Roman army, under this general named Titus, besieged Jerusalem. And eventually, in the year 70 A.D., they breached the walls of the city and instituted a great massacre of the people that were left, that were left following the horrific results of the besiegement itself. And finally, they fulfilled, the Roman army did, fulfilled the statement of Jesus here, that the temple would be utterly destroyed, and that not one stone of the temple would be left upon another. That literally came true as the Roman army specifically leveled the temple. Now we can still see remnants of that, we talked about it last week or the week before, that retaining wall that Herod had, had built around the, the, the mount, uh, the temple mount, and the additions that he had made to it. We can still see those foundations, those retaining walls, but of the, the temple itself, not one stone was left on another. And while, again, we're not told exactly what the abomination of desolation was specifically, the entrance of the Roman army, of the Roman general, into the holy place, into the holy of holies, at the climax of the destruction of the city, certainly fits. So that is another fulfillment of this and there are others who say that this is a reference here in Matthew or I'm sorry in Mark chapter 13 that this is a reference not to any of these things at all but to something that will happen at the very end of time with the coming of the antichrist and as we've discussed there there may be probably is a reference uh, to both what happened in Uh, at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and to 70 A.D., and a third one at the end of time. A reference to something then. A near fulfillment, a farther fulfillment, and a far fulfillment. Different mountain peaks that are separated, well, this last one by at least 2,000 years, and who knows how many more. But the primary reference here in Mark chapter 13 seems to be Uh, And we'll see this continue here. Content seems to be the events surrounding the destruction of the temple. After all, that's what Jesus had said that prompted the question that he's now answering. In fact, one of the problems with seeing a future reference uh, to this is that, at least right now, since 70 AD until now, there is no temple. The temple uh, was destroyed. There is no temple to be entered, or to be destroyed, or to be uh, to be desolated, and there hasn't been since 70 A.D. But this event, according to Jesus, is the event is the sign that must trigger an action among the Jews or among the Christians. So that's the second thing that we want to see is the response. Because Jesus says, when you see that, when you see that happening, when you hear of that happening, run. That's his word. That's his command. Run. Flee. And again, here Jesus specifically says, those who are in Judea, flee. See, there's, there's no worldwide context here. But this happens, but when this happens, you who are in Judea, you who are in Jerusalem, you flee. And he says, flee to the mountains, Jesus does. And that's an odd statement in and of itself. The typical move for anyone in the outlying area and the villages around anyone in the, in the city, or outside of the city, rather, that the first, at the first sign of trouble, what would people do? They would run to the city, into the walls of Jerusalem, this fortified city that was the safe action typically although it would be far from it here because judgment is coming Jesus is saying judgment is coming to the temple he's been saying that since chapter 11 of mark 13 of uh, mark right judgment is coming it is coming to the temple it's coming to the temple system it's coming to the city of jerusalem and to the people of the temple because they've rejected the messiah they have turned the temple themselves into a den of thieves. Instead of the, the temple, the, instead of the house of prayer that it was made to be, they've rejected the Messiah. They have trusted in the temple of God instead of the God of the temple. Judgment is coming, and the Roman army will be the instrument of judgment. The temple, the city, stand under the judgment of God. And when the Romans came into the city, they massacred people. We hear about what's gone on uh, here recently. Something similar, worse, happened then. Over a million Jews were killed in this action of Titus and his armies. But interestingly, history tells us that the Christians, the Christian population of Jerusalem, were not among them. Why? Well, because Jesus warned them about what was about to happen and warned them to flee to the mountains. And many of them fled. They listened. They escaped the judgment that came upon the Jews. And many of them fled to the city of Pella in the foothills of the mountains on the other side of the Jordan River, about 50 miles from Jerusalem. They fled there. And Jesus continues as he warns them, his warning continues by giving to them a sense of the urgency of this call. When you, verse 14, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He goes on let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let not the one who is in the field, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may may not happen in winter. He says, when you see this, when you hear of this, don't, if you're on the housetop, remember houses in those times had flat uh, roofs that were used pretty much like patios are today here. If you're there when this news comes, don't even go back into your house to get anything. Now let's just note this: that Jesus, that though Jesus is making these comments in 33 A.D., Mark's Gospel was not written until the 50s or the 60s. So this would be very contemporary. To them, very relevant to those who were the original readers, the original hearers of this gospel. Matthew's gospel, written around the same time, the 50s and the 60s. Luke's, maybe a little later into the 60s. And these warnings appear in each of those gospels. Luke puts it this way He says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it so don't do what your instinct would be to run into the city in fact if you're in the city get out of the city Mark says if you're on a housetop don't even go back in and gather belongings if you're out working in a field don't even come back to your house to grab a jacket urgency outstrips comfort here Even considering that if they're fleeing to the mountains, it's going to get cold in the mountains. That's why Jesus says in verse 18, pray that it may not happen in winter. Both because of the cold and because the winter rains would swell the wadis, the the streams and the rivers uh, and make them impassable and make it harder for them to get out of the city, away from the city into the mountains. All of these things would be compounded, Jesus says, on pregnant women or those who have very young babies, verse 17 mentions. And we see here another example of the compassion of Christ. The compassion for his people, and particularly the statement about the the women, his compassion for those among them who are particularly vulnerable. So we see the warning, or the response, rather. Next is an explanation. In verse 19, Jesus says this. He says, for in those days, the days he was just talking about, there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Now, if you go to a sort of plain rap evangelical church or turn on the TV or turn on the radio and the pastor happens to be preaching on these verses or in Matthew or Luke he will preach with great gusto with great confidence that what Jesus is talking about here is about the great tribulation that's with a capital G and a capital T that is to come upon This world after the rapture and after the the revelation of the Antichrist and the the beast and the false prophet. Things which, I'll just say it, seem to find more support in the minds of those who preach it than in the pages of Scripture. But the Bible does talk about uh, that in the last days there will be an increased tribulation of these types of things. And so what Jesus is saying here does very likely have both a near fulfillment that we're talking about in 70 AD and a far fulfillment of, of some kind. Though the far fulfillment, what that looks like, I, I think that the, the left behind kind of crowd are going to be surprised when it comes to pass because it's going to look different than what they've been learning. But the things that Jesus says here did have a, a very clear and in and of itself terrible fulfillment in the slaughter of the Jews, at the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple when the Romans came to town. Jesus says that in those days, by the way, that's the same those days that will be so difficult for pregnant women and, and the days that people are to flee. But in those days, Jesus says there will be, there will be great tribulation, but it's small g, small t. But not small tribulation. It will be such tribulation as, as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation until now and never will be. And again, Josephus, this historian, gives us some information about the tribulation of those days around 70 AD during this war. He speaks in his, his work, you can read it, it's fascinating, uh, of, of although it's kind of gruesome, of famine, of cannibalism, very often see that in cities that were besieged because people cut off all of the supplies and so there was even a, a thing where the, the, some of the zealots within the city went to their supply of, of food that they had and burned it up thinking that that would cause the rest of the people to then surrender. It didn't. It just made things worse. Famine, cannibalism, gruesome slaughter, Josephus tells us that 500 or more Jews were crucified every single day by the Romans. He says the Romans crucified so many Jews that they ran out of trees to make crosses. And verse 30 says that if the Lord had not cut short the days, no one would have been spared. Again, what a gruesome prospect. And how thankful do you think the Christians were for these words of Jesus when you see these things flee to the mountains, escape? They were told to flee. Of course, that was just the means of their being spared. The only power that could save them, the only thing that could spare them was the intervention of God, which he graciously provided. Even in the shortening of that time, the shortening of that day, we see God's gracious hand. You know how God in the Old Testament, as you read, whenever there is judgment coming, that there is always mercy uh, also that comes along with it. Even how um, in the destruction of Sodom, that first God agreed that, if, that he'd spare the whole city if they could find 10 righteous. Couldn't do that. And even when that proved too tall of an order, the Lord still brought his people, brought Lot and his family out of the city before he destroyed it. That's what he's doing here. He's bringing his people out of the city by this warning before he destroys it. Beloved, shall we not always be so thankful for the mercy of God, for the fact that, that he always has his elect? And he always preserves his elect through his grace, through whatever comes upon the church. The fourth thing that we see then is a warning. At the end of the discourse, of this section of the discourse, Jesus closes it, interestingly, as he began it back in in verse 5, with a warning, a warning against false Christ's false prophets who would come. He warns his disciples against those that others would point and say, look, here's the Messiah. Here's the Christ. Or there he is. Again, there were many around this time who came in, in, during the beginning of the war, during the, the later part of this war, who drew others to them, claiming to be the Messiah. False prophets who performed false signs and wonders. Again, things that that Josephus gives us many examples of. And the church was to be on the lookout for those. He said to them in verse 21, If anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. A warning to not believe those who point anywhere else and say there's Christ. Another lesson that we can learn today the church is always to be on the lookout for false teachers, always to be on the lookout for for false leaders, false ministers, false elders. And good ministers and good elders are to always be vigilant. In regard to the savage wolves that are outside that would seek to come in and men arising from the church itself to teach perverse things, Acts 20 tells us that. So a warning here, to not believe those who point anywhere else than to Jesus as he is revealed in the scripture and say, there he is, follow him. And there are many today very many religions today who say Christ is here. But it's a different Christ than the Bible describes. You look at what they teach about Christ. You look at what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And, and they don't line up. The warning is don't believe them. Some even have Jesus Christ in their name. But the Christ that's found in them and their teaching bears no resemblance to the the glorious, divine, only begotten Son of the living God come to us in human flesh to live and to die for our redemption and to, to supply righteousness that is counted as ours by God and received by faith alone. And anyone who proclaims another Christ, anyone who proclaims any other gospel, as Jesus says here, and as Paul says to the Galatians, don't believe it. Such false teachers and false teaching in the church are themselves an abomination, a defiling influence in the church, an influence that, if not identified, if not rooted out, will leave a church desolate, unusable, and repugnant to God. And that's the warning here. Don't follow false Christ. Don't follow false prophets. And then Jesus ends with a promise. A promise that he gives here at the end of verse 23, which again demonstrates God's just wonderful care for his people, that they not be led astray. He says right there at the end of verse 23, he says, I have told you all things beforehand. I've warned you. He has told us these things, brothers and sisters, that they might be alert, and that we might be over. That we might flee from danger. Where do we flee from danger? Well, we read or sang part of Hebrews today that talks about the fact that we don't come to a mountain with lightnings and thunder and all of that. We come to Mount Zion. And that is where we ultimately flee for safety to Mount Zion. The psalmist in Psalm 61 says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, the strong tower against the enemy. We'll end there for today. As promised, these are difficult things. This is a difficult passage. But you know what's not difficult? Beloved, it's the important things, the truly important things of Scripture. It's the teaching of God's Word about our sin and our need for salvation. It's teaching about our God who has seen our need and has given to us the only remedy, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is about the teaching of the Scripture regarding our Lord Jesus Christ, who is that remedy, who through his life and his death has provided eternal redemption for any who will drop to their knees before him in faith and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you said that this morning? If you have not, the warning of this passage is appropriate. Flee. Flee to Christ. Flee to that rock that is higher than you. You know, those things the Scripture teaches all over, and they are so simple that we can all understand. Christian, don't let these hard things trouble you. Don't let them distract you from the wonder of the glory of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ always, as the author of Hebrews also tells us, be looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And let our minds then, as well as our souls, beloved, find rest there. And to that, let us say, amen. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the the warnings of Scripture. We thank you for the the blessings of your word. We thank you for the the truth of your word that always leads us back to Jesus, that always teaches us to to look away from ourselves, to look away from the, the dangers, and to look to Christ, who is the who is our salvation. We pray, Lord, that you'd continue to work in us. We pray, Father, that you would continue to help us to understand. But let us, Lord, again, not be distracted from, from some of these other things that we would get our minds off Christ, that we would get our minds off of the things that we have been taught to do, Lord, to look to Christ, to study your word, to put to death the sin that remains in us and to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.